Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse. I'm your host, Chance, and I'm here to remind you that everything is everything, kind of. <laughs> In this hollow fractal cosmos, after the innocence of childhood, we begin the journey into adult adepthood by way of a separation mindset, a necessary delusion for us to outgrow through the journey of individuation, a word that means undivided. On our path to wholeness, we pick up a particularly crucial skill, which is to develop our ability to sense and see the ring of truth through looking within and without and gaining awareness of the self-similarity across all scales and dimensions, big and small, that any life-affirming expression must contain. This is where today's guest comes into the picture as an avid explorer of crunchy esoteric tomes and a seeker of synchromistic correspondence. Mario Garza provides potently concise pontifications on a variety of occult and astronomical mystery systems with gorgeous graphics and support by linguistic languages, linkages, <laughs> helping us to uh, visually verify that all important ring of truth in our learning process of the nearly infinite well of imaginal inspiration we've inherited from our most intelligent ancestors. Today, we're going to discuss many projects and concepts that Mario has researched over the recent years, including simulacra simulation and the solar perspective, the polar toroidal fractal, mercury magic and magnetism, the circumpolar sky clock, septenary rituals, and quite a bit more if we can fit it in. Mario has also recently been a guest on Vibrant episode 26, where he teamed up with me and Slick Dissident and Elsie King for a rather phenomenal conversation where we explored Gabriel's newest cipher and added a lot of insight to that concept. Also, Gabriel was on Weaving Spiders Welcome episode 65, and I'm pretty sure we're having him back right away. <laughs> I'm hoping that he's a, a regular spider because he fits right in, and I like the iron sharpens iron aspect of that show because I'm there to learn and research on the fly, and uh, being around guys like Mario makes me realize how much I have yet to learn. So you can find Mario's educational and highly entertaining work at symbolicstudies.com as long as as well as prints and artwork that he's got for sale. And his YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram pages are of the same name, Symbolic Studies. He's the sage of supernatural syncretism and a superb graphic designer with the skills to pay those Capricornia bills. And I'm happy and stoked to have him here. Mario, my man, welcome to Interverse. Hey, man, thanks for having me. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> well, after all my flowery words, how would you introduce yourself, you know? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I'm a symbologist, I suppose, and I'm really interested in symbols of all shapes and sizes and from a variety of different cultures. Um, I started off as a graphic designer, and so I spent a lot of time in Photoshop manipulating images, creating images. I used to illustrate quite a bit when I was a kid, and so I've always had that right brained artistic side of myself that always just wanted to express itself and uh, make art. And over the years, I just realized that I was really interested in decoding what I was making. And also a lot of uh, the artists that I looked up to, I wanted to know what they were making, you know, like Stanley Kubrick, I'm a huge Kubrick guy. And so when I saw his movies, it would just get my mind going. And I wanted to know, like, what was he trying to put out there? What was his intention behind certain films? behind certain scenes. And that led me to film school, actually. And when I was there, I found out that I really enjoyed 
the process of decoding and breaking things down. And one of my favorite things was literally just to watch my fellow filmmakers work and just talk about their projects and what they were putting into uh, their films. And so one thing led to another. I got really interested in tarot and then uh, my symbolic love of all things just got deeper from there. And so I launched the symbolic studies project as an expression of that love and just a way to learn more and share what I've been learning with others, you know? Absolutely, man. How long have you been doing that? It's, it seems like it's going really well. Yeah. Um, I would say basically, uh, I kind of gave it a test run and then starting last Aries. So it's almost been a full year. I've been putting out consistent work about each sign. Um, and so I still have to get to Pisces, which is coming up pretty soon. But if you go to my channel or if people go to my uh, social streams, they'll see stuff about every single sign. I actually remember whenever your first uh, <clears throat> post on Instagram came up, I don't know who shared it with me, but you only had like a few posts. And so you must have just been starting out last year. And I was like, this guy, this is a page to watch because <laughs> the information's fire. And I wanted to ask you too, as someone who is also interested in film, I, I was a film studies minor and English major. So like studying literature, analyzing the symbolism in literature, and then film studies wasn't about making movies, but about learning that visual language and symbolic literacy, which I found and it ended up being like the most crucial part of my entire skill set for what I do now. Although back then I had no idea that this is where I was going wasn't really interested in the occult in any way, shape or form in college. But to get back around to my question here, what do you think about your art and your life as an artist as a path to your own spiritual development? It sounds like you already started to break into that uh, answer. Right. You know, they're completely related to each other. And so when I look at some of what I'm doing now, I really feel like it's just a continuation of me doodling as a kid, honestly. And so every single path that my life has taken uh, when it comes to occultism and magic and symbolic studies and uh, symbolic awareness, as you're saying, um, it's all completely integrated. And I just feel like art is really the key to individuation and to, um, you know, uh, the path towards consciousness, I think. So I think a lot of people would benefit from making their own art. I think people would benefit from analyzing art in a more serious way. And I think that um, in order to be a free person, you have to be creative. And I think that there's this inherent link with creativity and freedom that's inseparable. And so I think that um, being a creative person, being more right brained, um, it gives you a lot of tools, actually, um, towards the path of freedom, because if you're not thinking about solutions in a creative way, you're probably not going to come across many solutions that are going to work. You know, and so in the world we live in, as you know, there's a lot of things we have to navigate around. And I think that if you have a creative mind, an artistic mind, I think that's only really going to help you um, in basically any endeavor that you're pursuing. So, yeah, I'm a big, big uh, art guy and I promote it and I'm like kind of unapologetically passionate about that and encourage people to basically express themselves that way. And so anytime I see somebody that's like, you know, leaning towards any kind of artistic endeavor, I'm typically their number one fan. Yeah, there you go. I feel the same way. It almost doesn't matter what you create, just that you do. 
And in fact, the unique aspect of combining your own personal skill sets into making something that only you can make, I feel like that's a crucial aspect of the individuation process you just described. Now, one thing that we've touched on in other conversations on Telegram and in Weaving Spiders and with Gabriel is some of the the switch-ups that happen in the tarot deck that Crowley made, the Thoth Tarot. And one of them that I actually appreciate, but only because it's in context with the older meaning of the card, is card 14, which is temperance in the in most versions, but in Crowley's, it is art. So what do you think about this idea, at least that it makes me think of, that our own personal development and purification of ourself, balancing our our issues, our polarities, and getting away from, like, basically addictions and unnecessary behaviors, those are the things that keep us away from our creativity. Do you also see, like, that art and temperance go hand in hand that you must work on yourself to develop as an artist, at least if you have a spiritually authentic aim. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think being an artist in a lot of ways is doing your shadow work, you know, and I think even Crowley said it in one of his books that um, destruction is the first act in the creative process. Right. And so temperance has these two cups and uh, she's mixing these cups. And, you know, to me, what I think about is just, you know, duality and polarity and creation and destruction and how in order to create anything, something has to be destroyed and it's not a negative thing. And so in order to build a house, you need lumber, you know, you need all these raw materials to do anything. If you're going to make an omelet, you need to crack some eggs. And so um, I think of art as just the second act or the uh, the second process of this whole entire cyclical sort of thing that we have going on here where things are seemingly just breaking down all the time and coming together all the time, you know? And so in a lot of ways, I think the act of creation gives you a new perspective on the other side of things, which would be the destruction or the breaking down of things or what have you, you know? Yeah, I totally jive with that. The turning destructive turning destruction into a transformative and creative act is exactly what nature does. So I think that's why doing that in our own way in even thus as artifice is still something that is an art that's in alignment with nature. Art is a tricky word because it has these two meanings. It can mean artificial or unnatural, something that wouldn't exist in nature without us, but also we are nature. So if we make our art, our artifice, in some way, either symbolically or technologically in alignment with how nature does things or to represent how nature does things, then we can transcend with that artwork and it speaks to people on all kinds of levels without them necessarily even taking your personal meaning from it. It just hits like there's that ring of truth that I alluded to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the wild thing, too, that I've realized about making your own art, at least this is what's happening to me. I don't know if it happens to you when you're making your own stuff, but um, it can speak to you, you know. And so it, uh, I've realized that some of the pieces that I've made over the years and some of these expressions that I've created seemingly, you know, months down the line, I see something in it that I did not intend. And so it's speaking to me in a new way. And I feel like I've leveled up by just witnessing my own art 
and witnessing uh, what my process was however many months ago when I created it. And that surprised me multiple times over the last like year or two. So I'm making a series right now, my first illustration series. um, And I'm creating each astrological sign based on my interpretation and my research. And I'm trying to encode it with as much information as possible. So I'm trying to put almost a whole lesson, a symbolic lesson of each sign in one piece. And I actually include a um, correspondence sheet with each poster that I sell to. And so I'm actually showing you what the symbolism means and why I put certain things in there. And I think it's this synchromistic sort of thing, but I have learned so much from looking at my pieces, you know, that I, and that was not the intention. I thought, well, I made it. So I, I know what's in there, but it's having this weird, very interesting effect where down the road, I'm picking up more information um, than when I just completed it. So yeah, the whole art thing is really fascinating. There's so many rabbit holes when it comes to, you know, artistic expression and, and what that means to us and our psychology and everything. It's fascinating. Yeah. Like what is imagination? I really like young for the sake that he, I mean, many reasons, but he investigates this natural image producing faculty of consciousness and what you brought up about learning from your own artwork. That is super cool because really it goes lost on a lot of people, especially people that some create children, but are sort of thick headed that our creations teach us more than we knew when we created them in a, in many ways, but especially children. So yeah, I, I can't remember the question that I had in there, but <laughs> it's yeah, amazing no, it's that totally you do that. Uh, you combine that left brain, right brain for people by giving them the, the symbolic cheat sheet. When's the symbolic studies tarot coming out? Oh, you know oh. what? I remember the thing too, is you have this Capricorn breakdown on recent video of your channel and it's just really satisfying to watch your hand with the pen draw the symbol and all the different versions of it and how much you can learn just by looking at the variations of that one glyph. Yeah, no, exactly. I love that. Um, And that's something I want to do more on my channel. When I first started out, actually, I started doing a lot of, I, I showed a lot of books. I kind of illustrated a little bit more. And then I think I kind of got away from that. And I started making stuff in Premiere and using graphics because I know Photoshop and everything else. But I feel like I want to inject more of that hand-drawn, human-made kind of warmth, I guess you can say, because it resonates with people a lot. And so I got a really good response from that video. And I think that people would rather see somebody doodle, doodle on a piece of paper than show a clean graphic, you know, from Photoshop or something like that. So it just it resonates a little bit more with people. But yeah, that video was definitely fun to make. The human touch. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Now, I should let people know at this point, if they're listening on the audio RSS feed, that Interverse is also a video show. And this particular episode, Mario has prepared some imagery that we'll do our best to describe as we look at it and not overuse that feature. But you can definitely hop on my YouTube channel, my Odyssey channel. Uh, Rockfin. Rockfin's probably the best option because they actually give royalties. Would love that. So it's all linked in the show notes if you want to see what we show and tell. Now, we had a, a nice list of information that you've prepared to go over, which I really appreciate and love. Not every guest does that, which is fine. But when when we have some notes to go off of, it really drives the conversation to some deeper places. And since we were talking about this dualism of creation and destruction 
it's a cool and like art as artifice. It's a cool place that we're going to begin kind of unintentionally with simulacra simulation and the solar perspective, because as we've talked about outside of this conversation, the solar centric, the heliocentric, (laughs) the cult of hell is really a dualistic mindset that demonizes the black demonizes the negative demonizes the feminine and it's not balanced as opposed to the polar which we can probably follow up with after we get into this first section right right um so i was on weaving spiders one week ago or two weeks ago something like that and i know it was briefly brought up the book simulacra and simulation are you familiar with it chance have you read it I've read parts of it, but I haven't read all of it. However, I quote, I quote Baudrillard pretty often. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the simulacra represents reality that is realer than real to paraphrase and just diving into that concept and what he means by that can, it unlocks all kinds of insights constantly that what does it mean to be realer than real? And my interpretation of that is that this oh he says the media represents not simulacra although that is simulacra media represents reality that is realer than real and how i take that is that we've come to accept truth from our black black mirror scrying device screens and this creates an overlay on our reality of what we expect or what we think reality is which is what makes it realer than real the media becomes realer than real in that we accept that reality that artificial narrative or reality given to us over and filtering out things that would contradict it that are actually otherwise absolutely true that we would receive from our perception and awareness of nature in the present moment without the filter if that makes sense yeah definitely um yeah that was great thank you for saying that um I'm new to his work and I know that for a lot of philosophy people you know I don't know if his work is considered old hat or old school or what have you, but um, I joined a very, very small intimate book club recently. And that was the first book that was chosen. And so I barely completed it, you know, maybe three months ago or something like that. But ever since I read it, it's really put a new spin on everything. And he's so right with this idea of simulation. And when most people think of simulation, they tend to think of something high tech, right? Um, But he doesn't, express it that way so he's not talking about a hologram or program necessarily although i'm not opposed to that line of thinking either i think that's interesting for a lot of different reasons but i use the word model a lot when trying to describe his work as i've been trying to tell friends about it um and one of the things that stuck with me regarding the model is that we're given these models in life how the sky works how science works you know how reality works And these models, at a certain point, what he describes is that, you know, um, a lot of these models or a lot of the things that are kind of given to us as a means to um, understand how reality works or a lot of these expressions that we get from the quote unquote system or establishment, um, a lot of these things reverse or flip into themselves or flip over or uh, become distorted, I guess. And so a lot of the things that we have in our world that are meant to say, keep us healthy are actually destroying our health, you know, or the things that are supposed to communicate quote unquote, the truth or the news 
um, actually are telling you lies, right? And so the education system destroys knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different examples now of basically every single thing that we have in this reality, in this domain, seemingly is a copy of a copy and doesn't really uphold or um, isn't uh, what it started off as uh, the intention of its creation. So it's just everything is kind of turned on its head in a way. Nothing really um, makes sense anymore. And so we live in a very confusing time. And once you start kind of looking at the world through this simulation idea, you realize that all of these different agencies or organizations that are supposed to um, uphold some sort of truth or uh, is supposed to communicate some sort of truth regarding, I don't know, NASA, let's just say, you know, NASA is supposed to tell us about what's going on in outer space and how space works and uh, about bleeding edge science, you know, but I don't buy that personally anymore. It's, it's meant to obfuscate the truth about all of that kind of stuff. So um, I basically believe that the same thing is kind of true with uh, our cosmology and, and how the solar system works and um, kind of how um, how prominent the sun has become in our culture and how it's become, you know, this ultimate deity in a way or this ultimate God. And we've been told that the sun is um, basically, you know, the center of our system, hence the solar system. And I think it's this outdated model, actually. I think that it was kind of put there for very strategic intentional reason and we'll get into it uh but i think that what they're doing is that they're kind of covering up this other perspective that i call the polar perspective and that um a lot of solar deities um from my understanding were actually polar deities and had this connection to this polar concept that i'm kind of going on about right now i actually haven't talked about it too much on my channel but it's something that i want to get into um, and kind of really, really explore, um, because I think there's a lot of interesting information there. And I think that, um, people would be interested in hearing some of, some of this stuff. Absolutely. I'm right there with you and want to learn more myself because there seem to be so many correspondences to the pole star, the North star being the sent, like from our perspective, being really the center of everything that all the wheel moves around. Whereas when we look at the sun, it doesn't look like we're moving around the sun. <laughs> it's a big, a big aspect of if that's your foundational cosmology, then that leads necessarily to the ability to believe in things that are not what you perceive that maybe be opposed or opposite to what you perceive with your eyes. And that's like the first foundational groundwork to uh, the simulation or the simulacra matrix fake society. Even matrix is not really the word that we, we use it as it means a womb. So to demonize matrix is a solarized thing. You know, it's like anti anti-feminine anti goddess in a way. So yeah. that idea of a corrupted copy of a copy of a copy that our society has become on so many levels, especially with health in particular, but mm. worldview warfare that we've been subjected to. This copy of a copy of a copy, it appears in all kinds of systems, mythological, tarot. I mean, just looking at some of your tarot videos, you go through like 25 versions of the same card with 
the sim the symbolism changes, but it also stays kind of the same. But it's like a game of Chinese whispers in a way. What's the original? Like the devil card, you couldn't even find the original in the oldest version of the tarot. So like long-term cellular division, what nature requires from the point where the the copying is becoming corrupted and the DNA is not all there correctly is the birth of something new and holy as in whole and intact. And I think that's kind of what we're doing in this field of people that research these type of things is trying to find what was original as in from source, what connects us to our origin and apply that to a new way of seeing the world that may very well be the rebirth of an old way, just like a child is the rebirth. It's new, but it contains all the information in a perfected state of the parents who have degraded and become aged. Yeah, that's really well put. Um, one of the examples that Baudrillard talks about that I probably should have started off with, but uh, this idea of maps and map creation and how, you know, maps were intended to communicate an idea of what a particular massive land looks like. Right. Well, as cartographers and map creators started making these maps at a certain point, people were more familiar with the map than they were with the actual landmass itself. So at a certain point, the map became more real than the actual landmass. Right. So what happens when the cartographers, you know, uh, haven't even seen the land themselves and they're just copying other maps. And what happens if there's some um, nefarious entity that's intentionally giving us false maps. And so there's this whole idea about just maps in general and where we live, you know, what, what is the real map of the cosmos and of this domain and of reality? I think it's up for debate. And I think a lot of people are putting forward some interesting concepts, but I think that just even questioning the idea of a map and consensus reality, you know, um, I think is interesting. And so when I see Google maps, you know, we know that a lot of maps have been messed around with and that certain continents have been blown up or, or made smaller. And I think it's really interesting, too, that a lot of maps don't even have the North or South Pole. You know, a lot of times when they're horizontal, it's just chopped off up top and chopped off down below. And so to me, uh, that communicates an idea. And I think that that's kind of strategically done. Makes you think like there are old maps that depict the North Pole with actual land masses there, like uh, an island with four rivers coming out from the center. And where's that all gone? Why was that idea present? When you look at you think like, well, you know, the Canadians would have would have found it if there's some land above them like that. But turns out I just found out the other day, Canada's only got like 38 million people in that whole country and very mm. few people out like very far away from the border with the U.S., not a lot of arable land. So the fact that we have military presence from every nation that's got an army in accord with one another to keep everyone else out of the North Pole, it's very interesting, very interesting. and. If we are shifting from a solar to a polar perspective, as in a centered in ourself and finding our center in the realm perspective and thinking about Earth maybe as a infinite plane or at least a flat plane with north being towards the center, but south just being away from center and east to west as going in a circle as opposed to like left and right, just that very switch up alone removes us from a foundational duality 
of North versus North, North versus South, which has been played upon in all kinds of conflicts throughout history. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this idea of the center um, and the polar being the center, um, basically to me, what I'm kind of realizing that is that a lot of symbols are a reference to the North, to this center, um, to this pole. And so to me, it makes sense that if something were to emanate from the center, which this is something that a lot of older cultures have embedded into their mythology, is this idea that we come from the North and we return to the North. And when I say the North too, there's a lot of concepts related to the North that I kind of interchange in a lot of ways. Um, so as an example, when I refer to the North Star or Polaris, or when I refer to Ursa Major, or when I refer to directional North, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of meaning um, the same thing. And in a lot of ways, it does remind me of the cosmic egg concept, which I know you're really familiar with, right? And so, um, but it's also a metaphor for your true North and, um, you know, your center, basically. And so when you look at the circumpunct, which is the glyph for the sun, it's a dot with a circle around it. And in many ways, I think that this is a, a cosmic egg symbol. And I think that this is a northern symbol. And they say that the circle came from the dot and that the dot came from the circle. And so it's this holistic, almost toroidal sort of glyph or shape. And interestingly, too, it, it kind of looks like Saturn from a northern perspective. Right. So you got the rings of Saturn and then you've got the center part, which is the planet itself. And so to me, it's really fascinating that this one symbol you know, is the glyph for the sun, but it's also very much uh, iconographic of Saturn itself. And when you're looking at this symbol, to me, I consider this to be almost a true representation of where we actually live. It's almost the simplest representation of where we actually live, I think, in a lot of different ways. And that any map beyond that, um, it might be uh, too complex um, to describe where we're actually at, because it seems to me there's really truly just an inner world and an outer world. And uh, when I think of the toroid, I think of the same thing that, and for people, your audience is probably familiar with the toroid, you think, just the general shape of it. Yeah, but I mean, that does, it doesn't hurt to give a description of things. I put a lot of faith in my audience, but there's always newer people to the information out there or that could benefit from a refresher. I like what you're saying before we, mentioned this uh that that glyph of the circle and the dot it really is like a perfect representation of the experience of life because as a as life is self-similar across all scales and it aspects we have ourself in the center in the outer world as this ring and our perception is always limited to some barrier to some boundary or edge which saturn also represents it's the god of boundaries and containers so we have our awareness and it's like whether it's the walls of the room we're in or the horizon in the distance, there's always this ring around us that is containing that awareness and we can move and move it. But, you know, and it's like perfect example of how when we move that the world moves. Yeah, exactly. That's a really great point. Um, and I totally agree with you. Um, 
And so the toroid is essentially kind of the donut shape, right? And so there's an inner portion to the toroid and um, that's closer together. And in some depictions, it's actually like a point. And so the toroid emanates from the center and then kind of comes back into itself. And so it's this looping sort of system. And I would encourage, I would encourage anybody, if you don't know what a toroid is, you can Google it. And um, there's a lot of fascinating things out there about it. But the idea is that it's one system that represents both the inner and the outer. Okay. And so the center part is called the hyperbola. And when I think of the central part of a toroid, which I think we just live in a nested polar toroidal system, the center part I would consider to be the pole or it's the trunk of the world tree. You know, it's the center of the cosmic egg. And so when I refer to the pole, that's also what I'm referring to is this center point. And there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it. And it has uh, a lot of overlapping things to do with electricity and magnetism and things like that, which is a whole entire rabbit hole in and of itself. And so uh, when I think of fractals, I just Googled it right before I got on the show. But like the simple term for fractal or definition is patterns that are self-similar across different scales. Right. And so I think that this uh, polar toroidal fractal exists it is the the true center and so it makes sense that everything that emanates from it is a reflection of that original system or that original creation and so i've read multiple books now about the north and the north star and uh the different myths and religions that have tapped into um kind of a northern cosmology once again where we come from and where we return to And it seems as though everything is kind of a northern symbol. I'm almost I'm a broken record now because when I talk about this stuff, I'm like, that's a northern symbol. That's a northern symbol. This, too, is also a northern symbol. Uh, You know, there's different gods and deities that were considered polar gods and polar deities, you know, uh, that we now consider to be solar gods and deities. But originally, my belief or my understanding is that when they were created or revered, they weren't looked at as being solar in nature, but actually polar in nature. And Mercury is a really, really good example of this. Yeah. Many of those characters carry the rod or a staff, which is a pole or even other symbols like a a spear or a halberd. And when you look into even things like the Occidental tradition and esoteric Christianity, you can find that, the Christ is a mercurial figure in the sense that if you apply him to the North star to Polaris being on the throne, which is the anagram for North, actually he's, he's right above the serpent of Draco that circles that at all times. Right. Yeah, exactly. the, The devil basically. Yeah, sure. Um, so as an example, uh, when it comes to Mercury, Mercury corresponds with the magician card. And so when you're talking about magic, I I think of magi and magnetism like right off the bat, right? The MAG. And most magician cards will show the magician and he has a wand in one hand, 
and he's holding it upward. And to me, this is symbolic of the pole because Mercury is a polar God. And so there's a lot of um, traditions and myths and storylines that associate him with the phallus, which is also a pole. And I know weaving spiders um, poles and holes comes up, you know, because it really is, that's the world we live in. It's poles and holes, you know? And so Mercury is a phallic polar God. And so a lot of times, and when I say Mercury too, a lot of times I'm referring to Hermes as well. And then by extension, Thoth or Thoth. And so I kind of put them all together that way, which can be sloppy for some people. Well, that's where I think uh, I've hopefully got people looking at things that way, not to interrupt too heavily, just that. Go for it. Yeah, that uh, a lot of these characters, it seems like the the cult of Helios has tried to apply solar connections to all these different gods. But then if you go further, it's like we have this idea of esoteric and exoteric, but really there's way more levels of initiation than that. There's the literal story. Then there's the sun god solar story. Then there's the polar story. And then there's the all of this exists within you <laughs> truth. And that's even the right. circle dot glyphs with like the eye, it looks like an eye. And that's also our self, the eye. Yes, exactly. And uh, sometimes that glyph is called the eye of God, you know, or the Godhead. And so even that's another example of uh, northern polar symbolism is that it's been looked at as an eye, as a mouth, as a mountain as a grail, you know, it just, it kind of goes on and on. And there's a few books that I've read that kind of bring together all of these correspondences. And by the end of reading some of this material, I was like, well, what isn't a polar symbol? And that's kind of been my big question. And my, my perpetual answer is almost like, well, nothing, every, everything seems to be a symbol of the pole of some kind. Um, And so Mercury Mercury, a lot of times, Mercury Hermes holds the caduceus, right? And so it's like a rod and there's two snakes wrapped around it. And when I see that now, obviously, a lot of people would think of Kundalini energy, uh, the fire snakes going up the spine. And I think that's totally appropriate and fair and makes sense, too. Um, But the spine itself seems to be a polar symbol, you know, that uh, physiologically, the pole is expressed in our physical bodies as the spine itself, right? And there's 33 vertebrae in the spine. And that number is obviously very mystical and encoded into a lot of different things and very mercurial as well. But the staff that he holds and a lot of staffs in general, I think are symbolic of this central pole and the snakes going up and down. um, It reminds me of Mercury's psychopomp um, nature of being able to go between realms, essentially. And so the center point of uh, the toroid, the hyperbola, the trunk of the tree, this pole is the bridge between realms, essentially. And so that's another aspect of all this symbolism is that um, the axis mundi, which is another name for it, is uh, essentially a gateway of sorts between realms. And if you look at the toroidal field, you'll see what I'm talking about. And it'll make a little bit more sense if you kind of understand that whole entire framework. <laughs> this is uh, this is so fun. I have kind of a, several responses here. Like at 33, it. you can conceive of it as if there was a balancing point between 
the two threes, then you'd have a, a seven out of that, which does represent the pleroma or wholeness. And I think it's really helpful since we are learning to look at life as this fractal to consider, well, where's the spine of the world? The world would need a spine. And it even is given to us with the, the globe model in a sense, but not really. It's only like a magnetic spine with these two poles that theoretically attach. You know, I could dig a hole right here, dig long enough and come out in China somehow. <laughs> that whole concept. But things without a spine do exist in the realm too. But generally you find them in the ocean like a jellyfish. And the ocean is still a pleromic symbol. It's really the place where there's like, it's hard to differentiate because it's all murky and the water's dark and deep. And in the ocean, you can find every kind of biological adaptation or technology, even things you don't see on the surface very often, like bioluminescence. So the ocean is like this uh, essence of pre-differentiation. But here on the surface, this part of the, the polarization, we have these spines, we have this upright nature. And I think that the, I think that the external world that we're in would thus need to have some kind of a spine, some kind of a central column or channel of energy, even what you could consider like chakras of the earth in the center of this toroid, the, the eye of the storm, if you will. <laughs> and yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on that. And then <clears throat> the idea too of this fixed pole star, something that came to me since we talked to Gabriel on Vibrant 26 last week and Elsie King. If you guys didn't catch that conversation, it was so good. I learned so much. But we uh, we talked about the cancer uh, being at the top of his new cipher and being a very polar part of the wheel of the Zodiac. And then that tied in really nicely to all the chariot conversation that was in the Weaving Spiders Welcome episode 65. And we specifically were looking at how the chariot rider is commonly depicted as just an upper body that's like embedded in this cube. And so to, that really does seem to support the cipher Gabriel made with cancer at that keystone position, because that's a fixed character in a way. Anyway, like there's a, there's so that's much. That's a great point. I love that concept. actually. Yeah. It constantly yeah. just reveals more to it to you as you like, let these ideas percolate. 100%. And that that's something that has been uh, a thing for me over the last, you know, I would say my polar research um, has been, it's become an extension of my um, research looking into the shape of the earth. And I don't know, that's something I know you're interested in. Obviously, um, I started looking into that in like 2014. And so um, I started reading books about it pretty early on. Um, I was actually looking into uh, Eric Dubay's research and looking at his site before he ever mentioned it at all. And then I remember the first article he put out about Flat Earth. And I was like, dude, what is this guy talking about? This is completely nuts, you know? And then I downloaded his PDF and I read it and I was actually reading it on a plane to go to India. And he had all these different proofs in it. And I thought it was really interesting. I was reading it on an iPad and I'm like in a plane and I'm looking out the window, reading this flat earth book. And I'm like, man, this guy might be totally onto something. I was closed off to it, but the more I read about the proofs, the more it makes sense. 
And one of the wildest things that happened was we landed in Mumbai and it's literally like the first or second day we're there. And it's such a kind of a culture shock, right? It's very different from the West and we're just like getting acclimated to everything. And Indian people are very friendly, especially if they know you're a Westerner. They, they like to come up to you and ask questions and everything else. And this younger guy came up to me and my buddy. And I really wanted to talk to him about spirituality and just kind of his whole perspective on everything. And he asked us if we wanted to go get tea. So we went to this little cafe thing and we started having tea. And I asked him about, um, you know, if he has any sort of like, uh, spiritual inclination or if that's something he um, has looked into or something like that. I can't remember how I phrased it, but uh, he said that he has a guru and without mentioning anything that I was looking into, he said, yeah, my guru teaches us that the earth is stationary and it's actually flat. And he says, people in the West have no understanding of this. And it just blew my mind because I did not mention anything about anything. <laughs> and he flat out just said that that's what his guru teaches. And he even gave me one proof about why um, it is geocentric. And so to me, just to think that this guy has no, you know, um, no awareness of that scene online at all. But yet, you know, his spiritual guide is teaching this. To me, I was like, okay, well, there's more here that I need to understand and look into. And I'm just like you, by the way, just for the record, I'm earth shaped agnostic, I suppose. And I'm not really committed to anything. Although I do think more than anything, more than the actual shape of it, I do think we live in a geocentric realm. And so whatever that might look like, if it's an egg, and there's a few other ideas out there about what that can possibly be. To me personally, that makes a little bit more sense. And it makes a lot of sense that they would try and promote this solar perspective, which um, the psychology of the solar perspective is everything is external, you know, so everything is about the other, everything is outside of yourself. And I think that leads to a lot of different issues that we basically um, see all around us, you know. There's so much there. Yeah. Earth shape agnostics, a good way to put it. It's not. It's just not what they told us. <laughs> the The most important thing is like, I, I like to say this about truth. It's only discovered through the apophatic method, which is ruling out what it's not because truth is nature. Nature is the truth. The existence is truth and existence is in some way infinite, at least due to our ability to comprehend. Maybe there is some sort of boundary on truth and nature that's outside or above and beyond what we can perceive. But what we get when it comes to truth is that it's everything. So it's bigger than we can ever hold in our conscious mind at once. And thus you cannot define the absolute boundaries of nature or truth or existence with any particular label statement or explanation. And the apophatic method is about ruling out what it's not. So we can, all of us simply, if we were motivated to, apply the calculations we've been given for the heliocentric models size and shape of the earth and curvature and very simply places all over the world you could find a vantage point where you can see farther than you should be able to see with curvature thus ruling out the hypothesis the theory that the earth is a sphere with a radius of 3659 miles or whatever it is something in that ballpark and at that point, then 
<laughs> game on. You know, we can have all kinds of interesting speculation. And, and, you know, when it comes to liars, when you can prove that you've been lied to a dozen times by an individual or an organization, why trust any of it? And what knowledge they do have coming from NASA would be nothing without the giants whose shoulders they stand upon, the ancient world that gave them the many astronomical observations and calculations that they use as a foundation to then kind of twist into the heliocentric worldview poisoning that they provide us with. And it's really interesting, too, to consider another inversion. Like Gabriel says this all the time, that when you deal with binaries, when you deal with Yakim and Boaz, when you deal with true and false like that, you're, you're either completely right or completely wrong. So all it would take is one inversion in the foundation of a belief system or a worldview, and everything that's built upon that would have an unstable ground. And the ground of philosophy is the most important and mysterious aspect. It's always rooted in belief, whether it's belief in a big bang or a divine creation, or that everything always existed and always will exist. You can never get past the ground. You can never take all the paint off of the canvas of the universe and find what the canvas is made out of. In fact, the further that we look with our microscopes, the more that we see there is no canvas. <laughs> and that gives us to that idea of like the, the hologram or a projection of consciousness. So where am I going with this? I had a question in there, but then I just started kind of ranting. I'm sure that oh, this yeah. is giving you thoughts. Oh, it absolutely is. You know, um, I mean, one of the things with the solar perspective, as an example, versus the polar perspective, is that um, with solar psychology, because everything is external, you don't even trust your own senses anymore, which is the wildest thing, you know, so people don't trust their own eyesight. They don't trust anything that doesn't come from an expert, you know, versus the polar perspective. It's like, well, what am I sensing? You know, what do I see? You know, how am I interpreting the world? And it, it's not a selfish thing. It's one of these things where, well, you know, they're telling us about all of these um, things in the macrocosm and the microcosm that I have not perceived, but yet they want me to believe a certain thing about each side of those. So I think the solar perspective, it's... um the the big lie having to do with the heliocentric model is on the ginormous macro level in terms of cosmology and where we live. What's the real map of uh, of our reality in relation to the heavens and also what's happening on this infinitely small micro level. And I think we're seeing a lot of distortion in that regard um, with everything we've been dealing with over the last couple of years. And so I actually think it's almost the same lie or the same, uh, same trick, I guess, or same spell even from as above and so below. I, I find a lot of interesting overlaps with the heliocentric model and uh, everything a lot of people have been discussing over the last couple of years, um, given health and all of that. Yeah. Uh, another thing about the heliocentric model it, like going back to that idea of 50-50s, and if you got one thing wrong, you might be really wrong. And I'm not like married to this idea, but Ben Balderson brings up that in the, the Norse and the heathen cosmologies, and this is not necessarily exclusive to northern cosmologies, but that it's actually pretty common in the East as well, that the in terms of 
polarities of the sun and moon, that the moon is the masculine and the sun is the feminine, which is a total flip and inversion from what we get in the Occidental tradition, the Western tradition. So there's a lot of, and this is why I want to switch the moon card and the sun card from 18 and 19, because it has to do with the, uh, the big periods that the, the sun and moon do, the metonic cycle and the, the sorrow cycle having to do with that 18 and 19, which I've talked about before. Mm. I won't get into it now, but a recent insight that came to me, it was said in the telegram chat by a brilliant person that live has a one in it and love has a zero in it. And someone else brought up that <clears throat> the uh, feminine is about connection, which is the love. It's the zero. It's the O. The masculine is about freedom, which is live. And it's the one. If that makes sense, the one and the zero is in the live and the love. So my point here is that the solar perspective could be a feminine one. God is oriented mm-hmm. at its root. And I think that the symbolism is there in the cult of Helios, that the son is meant to be the father and the mother and the son, S-O-N, in one, the triune God, the Trinity. And they're applying all that to an entity that isn't actually the center. So giving the Trinity status to it is it's kind of dubious, although maybe the sun and moon each have both polarities within us, like living beings such as ourselves. However, if the solar perspective is a feminine one and being goddess oriented, it would explain why we get so many sacrificial elements in the ancient cults dedicated to the sun, because the, the goddess cults of the past were pretty bloodthirsty when you look into it. They really wanted sacrificial animals, hunted animals, or even, you know, the blood of newborns in some cases and this solar perspective being feminine could be leading us towards the imbalanced feminine expression in our society with the concept of communism that is so dangerously spreading throughout the world and the distortion and emasculation of freedom and removal of the seemingly threatening power of the male and even the uh, sort of demonization of the moon being a, like that's the evil one the lunar side the dark side Right, exactly. Uh, I'm completely open to that. And, you know, one of the things um, along my symbolic journey that I learned is that you really can't stay rigid and dogmatic about anything. And there's been so many times where I assumed something about a particular symbol or myth only to be proved wrong. And it's happened so many times now that I really try and stay open minded um, to these sorts of ideas and concepts because. You know, I, I know that there are certain things that I'm thinking right now, certain ideas that are going to be flipped on its head, <laughs> you know, um, and probably pretty soon, you know, the more and more I learn, the more I'm expanding my awareness of just everything. And so um, I try and be skeptical with what I'm aware of. And so um, even one of the latest things, to be honest, so Elsie uh, King, we talked to him the other day, and he apparently has a perspective that um, procession might be a lie or a hoax. I don't know if he's published work about that or if you've talked to him about that or whatever, but to me, that's really, really fascinating. And that's something that I have not considered. Oh yeah. That's universe guest. Yeah. So it's just really good right now. Yeah. 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 Very cool. So that's something that I was not aware of, but I would love to know what he has to say about that because this idea of procession, the procession of the equinoxes and that uh, the sky clock is changing over time. And so certain constellations along the ecliptic 
you know, uh, appeared at different times of, of the year than they do now and how that changed things. And then also how even the pole star changed, you know, if you consider this idea that everything is slowly moving in a certain direction and that it's not um, the same, you know, century after century, uh, millennia after millennia, that changes a few things. But I'm also open to the idea that this is some sort of hoax, you know, and that they want us to believe this for some random idea. I don't know. Maybe Elsie um, can expand on that at some point. But uh, that's a very, very curious thing that he said the other day. I'd like to know more for sure. And there's not just the idea of procession that's sketchy. There's also the supposed parallax movement of some stars relative to other stars over time which NASA gives us as an idea because like, Oh, these ones are way farther away than those ones. And I I think we really don't know. And why would the constellations appear in the sky exactly? I mean, maybe they move with procession, maybe not, but why would they appear exactly as the same constellations as they were in the ancient, ancient star maps? If some stars were moving relative to other stars over long distances of time, I don't see it doesn't seem to be there. That's one strike against NASA amongst yeah. many. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. I wanted to um, clear, like maybe add a little bit to this thing of communism. I'm not obviously demonizing the feminine by calling communism feministic, but the trick of communism is that it's based in this external savior. The government will fix things. We must love each other by sac- sacrificing ourselves for the collective. It's the number one reason why most people will take a cowpoke. And it's actually foundational to the entire redeemer mythos of many heliocentric religions that the solar deity sacrifices himself for everybody else. And then that's what the example we're supposed to follow. When if that was the case, then if we all sacrifice ourselves, then we're all dead. But if we all take responsibility for our own freedom and for our own self in a heroically masculine way, male or female, then we're all good. And then if we're all good, then those of us that do need help can easily be helped and loved in a balanced way because most of us or enough of us are self-sufficient, self-reliant. But wow, this is a, this first hour is really flown by, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's take a minute too before we hit the break. You know, if there's anything that's in these first like six notes, we did talk a lot about the circumpolar sky clock and Maybe we have more to say about Mercury, magic, and magnetism, but everything else that I alluded to in the intro, we seem to have touched on nicely and expanded on in really interesting ways. And I'm loving this so far, but if you want to finish up any threads for the free hour and then give people your plugs, remind them where they can find you, let them know how they can support you and maybe preview some upcoming work. We don't have to hurry through the end of the first hour, but we are at about that time. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I think everything that I mentioned already um, can kind of stand on its own. There's a million different threads we could pull out right now, um, but I'm comfortable kind of just tugging at those in the second hour. But um, once again, my name is Mario. You can find me at symbolicstudies.com. Right now, I'm putting out content based on Aquarius. And so I have uh, one or two more videos coming out about Aquarius, and then I'll be moving on to Pisces here um, in the not too distant future. And so if you just want to keep tabs on what I'm doing, go to my website and you can find all my socials there. Yeah. And how how can they support you? Uh, You know, you can buy a poster if you want. Um, So those are over on Etsy. And so you can find the link on my site 
And then honestly, just uh, if you find my work interesting, uh, send it to people, you know, and share it with others and uh, feel free and reach out anytime. Uh, you know, one of the crazy things, too, I'm sure you know this very well, but it's amazing how much um, having kind of a, a group of people watch your work, like how beneficial that can be. And so people have shared some amazing videos and books and just random insights. And so that's one of the things I'm really geeking out about now is that now that I have a small audience, people are just coming out of the woodwork and just like blowing my mind with all sorts of things. So if there's anything that you feel like I should be aware of, you know, uh, just let me know and reach out. Yeah, that's really fun. The crowdsourcing of research. For me, the Telegram app was what blew that wide open. And even just today, there was so many amazing insights going on in the Telegram channel. I could barely keep up. Like, to be frank, I didn't fully keep up. But just knowing that they're sharing ideas with each other. And when I peek in there, I get huge insights. And like I had flashes of inspiration from the parts that I was able to take in. And my point in saying this is that A, people should get on Telegram. And B, since you've been in the mix with us over there on the Interverse channel and the Weaving Spiders Welcome channel, I'd really like to see you have your own dedicated symbolic studies chat group and channel where you do updates because Telegram actually lets you upload videos too. And since yours are so short, you can be putting your content straight to there and that makes it very shareable across the whole network could be pretty helpful for you. And then the chat channel will give people a nice place to collaborate their ideas with you. And it's really easy to set up and manage. It's one of the beautiful things about Telegram. It's practically the only social media I use now. So check the show notes for my Telegram, folks. I'd love to have more of you join in there. We've got 444 in the chat as of today, which is a pretty cool number. And Mario, thank you so much for this great first hour. Second hour, we may continue to expand on some of the ideas that we've been on so far, but we've also got the four bullet points of septenary rituals, Egyptian and Freemasonic afterlife symbolism, serpents and the cycles of life, and the age of Aquarius. So... All that and more. Catch you guys on Rockfin and Patreon. And thanks for being here, dude. This has been so fun. Agreed, man. I'm having a good time. are going to just improve from here for us because that guy's got all the knowledge of symbolic correspondence that we could possibly digest, at least in one episode. I'm for sure going to have him back really soon. I love the fact that he's new to the podcast scene in terms of going on interviews and that 
He's just been really head down studying and creating content for a year. And he's gone a long way with that. I think he's going to teach a lot of people really useful information for sure. I'd love to see him on more shows that I am interested in. So maybe I can make some of those connections and possibly you guys out there could recommend him as a guest to podcasts that you enjoy besides this one. Yeah, Mario is really awesome. You should check out Symbolic Studies on YouTube or if you must go to Instagram or I guess TikTok if you're nasty. <laughs> no offense, you talk tickers. It ain't for me. It just feels like my spirit is being assaulted whenever I go to that website. Something about it feels weird. Now that's true for Facebook and Instagram too. And really the whole game that we play with social media is weird. Uh, Telegram, in my opinion, is the best option, but even that has sort of a pull to it. Pretty strong pull to not miss out that FOMO thing of like, oh, I got to catch up on all the chats that I'm in and interested. But that's like at least real conversation. And yeah, it's not as like currency based and all that. It's not weird. (laughs) <laughs> it's got so many advantages. So check out our Telegram group on Inst- or on Instagram, on Telegram, Rongram. All that's linked in the show notes. And give Mario a shout through our group or just a comment on one of his videos, something like that. Let him know you, sh- you shared his work or that you enjoyed it because it's really good. It's really concise. I couldn't talk him up enough. We really hit it off. I feel like a kindred spirit with him, interested in all kinds of different general topics of symbolism and the occult and spirituality. And we kind of wind up with really aligned perspectives, which I think is cool with the fact that we are both generalists and it seems to reveal a bigger picture about this whole inner North star thing, man, there's so much, (laughs) I guess I should let you guys know what happened in the second hour. If you didn't hear that, if you're just listening to the free hour, Why not come over to my Patreon or join us on Rockfin? Not too expensive, and you get so much content. My Patreon, $5 a month, you get everything I ever did that was plus content. So many episodes in the archive. Even going back to years ago, there would be things that you'd be surprised at how interesting they are and how relevant they might still be. I know I would be surprised. I don't go back to my old shows very often, but when I do, I'm like, yo, this was pretty good for the tiny audience that we were rocking back then. Anyway, $10 a month is the Rockfin option. You get everything that Rockfin's got going on for premium content, kind of like the Netflix of indie creators. Way, way, way more worth your money than Netflix, in my opinion. And just as impenetrably dense and deep archive and well of possible knowledge and information and entertainment all rolled up into one. Yeah, that's my Rockfin pitch. (laughs) I don't care which one you do. Either one helps me out. And in this plus extension, we talked about the circumpolar sky clock, which was a carry on from stuff in the first hour. We got into Ursa Major, Lovecraftian Black Magic, Circumambulating the Cube, uh, Ascension Rituals and the Septenary, Egyptian and Freemasonic Afterlife and Reincarnation Symbolism, the Serpents and the Cycles of Life, the Indian Kumbh Mela and the Age of Aquarius. The layers of density of spirit and water and the, the etheric environment in the world of 5G, all of that and so much more. Really, really good second hour. 
I'm thinking he'll have to come back in like a month because we could easily find other topics to get into. He brought up some things, I think, in the second hour that I'd love to see. If you guys out there wanted to crowdsource some looking into it, uh, he brought up a YouTube channel called Occult Lectures. He didn't necessarily endorse everything the guy said or maybe even like the guy, but he thought that there was good information there. He also brought up a book called The ISIS Thesis by Judy K. King. So if anybody in our Telegram community looks into either of those things and wants to share whatever gems and nuggets they might dig up, that would be pretty awesome. Uh, other ways you can support the show, just added some extra merch to the merch store, um, mugs and t-shirts, things like that. There's a couple of art prints in there. I'm going to add more when I have time. It's just like, you know, a little bit here and there. It's getting better. And there's some cool stuff already there. So if you want to rock the Interverse merch, that's how you do that. You can hit me up for sound healing sessions. Actually, give me a second to pull this up. I'd like to read a review I got of a session I did just yesterday. So here we go. This is from our friend Ariel. She says, I thoroughly enjoyed my sound healing and reading session with Chance. It was relaxing, eye-opening, reaffirming, challenging, emotionally integrating, and incredibly insightful. I felt lighter and clearer after the sound session. Chance was great at explaining the process, expressing his findings, and interpreting the cards drawn for the second half. I am so glad I made this appointment and plan to make a follow-up one in the future. Thanks so much for sharing your talents, Chance. <laughs> Thank you for letting me do what I like to do. Yeah, with Ariel, we did a sound healing session followed by a Key of Destiny oracle card reading, and it was mind-blowing. The synchronicities in the card reading were like off the charts. It was practically every card saying the same thing. And I wasn't just interpreting it that way, maybe. I had a lot of fun. So if you guys are interested, you can check out the show notes for links to information on sound healing or Oracle card sessions, or just hit me up on telegram or email me chance at interversepodcast.com. I think actually pretty soon I'm going to raise the pricing for the sound healing because I'm realizing it is more work than just the actual work of doing the session. There's a lot of, a lot of like setup work and preparation work for me energetically. And there's a lot of work afterwards with clearing and grounding and taking the ritual space back down because I like I set it up and take it down every time so it's a different configuration in terms of crystals and candles and energy and all that for each person I try to customize it for everybody so that being said there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into it and I think that you'll get so much more out of it than you might expect hello kitty I apologize if you started hearing some cat's meows. I didn't close my door. And the way I'm recording this, I can't pause it. I just have to go through in one shot. So, okay, quiet, buddy. <laughs> anyway, uh, what else have I got going on? Well, there's the new audio book I just released that I produced and narrated for Dylan Sicoccio, July's End. Also linked in the show notes. You can get Clive DeCarl supplements, which are top of the line at least get you some magnesium and vitamin C from the guy. You won't regret that. The pricing is awesome because you get actually like a three month supply. So it might look a little more expensive than what you get at the grocery store, but you get a lot more and it's the type of quality that you actually need for your body to use it. Right. So there's that. I think that's all the plugs I wanted to toss into the mix for this conversation. 
I hope you guys are excited for what's coming up next. I have LC King is my my uh, follow up from this one. I've already recorded that conversation. I'm a little more ahead of the game than I usually am. And I think the episodes will pair together quite nicely, very nicely. And in fact, if you caught Vibrant episode 26 with Mario Symbolic Studies and Gabriel, our good friends like Dissident, with Elsie King in the mix, that four-man chat was really epic. Builds on what we talked about here, but you don't have to have heard that to check out the Elsie King episode that's coming up next. But I think all three of them together constitute a really fantastic February in terms of these symbolic, syncretic studies that we're so so interested in. And yeah, I'm going to play us out with a track called Hutikaka. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. I looked up how to pronounce this. Witaka? I don't know. H-U-I-T-A-C-A. I apologize for butchering that. You'd think I'd be better pronouncing weird words after reading an occult audiobook, but it doesn't get easier necessarily unless you get proficient in a particular language. So yeah, this song, Huitaka by Nyrus. I'll link that in the show notes too if you want to look for it. It's a good one. And much love to everybody out there. Very excited. I'm recording this on a Wednesday, so I've got another good vibrant to look forward to tonight. And I'm trying to keep it brief. We're at 10 minutes, so we'll wrap it up there. I'm sure you got plenty of my thoughts in this episode anyway, because there's a little bit more balance between me and the guest in terms of the conversational flow, which I like. Mario brought a lot of really fun ideas out of me. And I thought some thoughts I'd never thought before and made some connections that were brand new. And I appreciate him. So like I said, hit him up, let him know you liked this episode, share this around. That's like the best way to help Interverses share the show. Cause you know that we got all the shadow bands going on with YouTube. Despite that, we're getting much bigger all the time. And if you're not watching the video version of the show, maybe consider checking that out <clears throat> on Rockvin or YouTube. We've got a video for every episode and that does make it more fun. Yeah. So watch out for all the good things coming up. Much love everybody out there. Hope that we can connect on telegram. would really like to see that community keep getting bigger and better. It's amazing right now. Last time I checked, we're at 444 members, which is kind of mystical. And yeah, okay, playing us out with Witika Taka by Nyrus. Enjoy. Much love. Talk to you guys soon.
Oh, oh, oh.